and welcome to the New Mexico Autism Project podcast for educators. These podcasts, as well as our online training series, have been developed by the University of New Mexico Center for Development and Disability in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department as a resource for educators who would like to learn more about evidence-based practices for working with students diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. We hope that you enjoy this series, and if you have any questions about these resources or how we may support your school district through the NMPED Autism Project, please contact me, Patrick Blevins, at the email address shown on the slide, or call the UNM CDD at 505-272-3000. Welcome to this podcast from the UNM Center for Development and Disability, the Autism Program School Team. Today, we'll be talking about some important administrative concerns, the 11 considerations for students with autism spectrum disorder that are a part of the IEP meeting. Joining me today is Loretta Vega from the Las Cruces Public Schools. She has worked for many years with students with autism and has really been instrumental in Las Cruces in working to ensure high quality education for students with autism. Uh, Loretta, would you please introduce yourself and then let us know what you're currently doing in Las Cruces before we go on? Yes, thank you. Um, As she mentioned, my name is Loretta Vega. I am the Autism Instructional Specialist here for the Las Cruces Public School District. Um, I've actually been on the job for just about a year now, so it's, you know, it's still a learning progress as we're going along. Uh, Prior to this position, I was a special education teacher over at Hermosa Heights Elementary, and I was there for 18 years. Um, the 10 of, out of 10 of those 18 years um, was specifically autism only for uh, DD preschool students, so three to five years of age. So um, going into that program, I really learned a lot through the UNM Intensive Mentorship Program. You guys came and saved the day and helped me really learn my way around through the ins and outs of autism and um, really make my program a huge success and kind of give me the courage to apply for the position that I'm in now. So thank you guys so much for that. <laughs> Well, thank you for the plug. And uh, so for those of you listening in, if you would like uh, the school team to come to your classroom and uh, work with you, uh, there is contact information uh, included with the, um, there's a tip sheet that goes along with this podcast and the contact information is included on that. And, you know, I've got to say uh, Loretta's classroom had the privilege of uh, visiting it back in the day when we could actually visit classrooms and uh, what a, what a joy it was Loretta to, to see how your classroom operated. Thank you so much. I, I really do. I miss my students, but it's wonderful to see my students who have moved on and still get to visit them and help them and their families as well. So that's, it's been great. Great. Well, I so appreciate you doing this with us. And and uh, for this podcast, as I said, we're talking about the 11 considerations. So I'm going to remind us all of what the considerations are. Um, and I'm going to just uh, say what they are as presented in the PED Autism Spectrum Disorder Training Manual that can be found online. If you'd like to take a look, you can just put in NMPED Autism Spectrum Disorder Training Manual, and it'll come up. Actually, several training manuals will come up. So Loretta, um, after I mention what those considerations are, I'd like you to comment 
on how each of the considerations uh, may be discussed in an IEP meeting and how they're helpful uh, for school staff as well as families. Okay. Um, so um, the first one is um, extended educational programming. And that, of course, includes uh, extended school year or you know, um, things over breaks, uh, school services over breaks. So uh, let's talk about that one a little bit. Okay, and th this one's super important, I, I, especially for teachers, new teachers coming in. A lot of the questions that I normally get when it comes to um, extended school year ESY um, is how, how do we know they qualify? When are they going to qualify? And usually the response I give back is, you know, that's kind of an IEP team decision. And having it as one of the considerations is, is especially important to talk about because you're really looking at the growth and development that your child has had throughout the school year. And especially important as it's our favorite word for everybody, it's that data word. We got to look at the data. We got to see what the numbers are telling us. Um, really important for the team to get together and talk about what you're seeing um, as far as the growth and what we're seeing, not only at school, but at home and really including the family in that conversation. Because of course we want all these skills that we're teaching our kids to be generalized across all environments. So making sure that we bring our families into these conversations and talking about, well, you know, so-and-so is doing this at, at school and have you seen that at home? And, you know, over Christmas break or holiday breaks, things that we might have, you know, um, are they still doing it? Because not only do we want those skills happening at school, we want them happening at home. So really talking to your team about the importance of these skills and looking at your data is gonna be huge for this consideration. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the, the data um, because it, it's easy, I know, for those of us who work with kids with autism to just assume, assume that they're going to qualify for extended school year. But yes. there are some very specific questions um, and criteria to be met uh, regarding uh, their, their um, ability to participate in extended um, um, educational programming. So I really appreciate you, you mentioning that one. Definitely, yes. Uh, consideration two is daily schedules. And oh, I know how we've had long <laughs> conversations about daily schedules. So uh, tell me how you put that uh, uh, again, specifically in an IEP meeting. So looking at daily schedules, it's super important to see where the needs of your students going to be. And again, discussing with your team, and that, that's going to pretty much hit with every consideration that we talk about, discussing with your team and discussing with your families what they see going on. Um, are students having difficulties with transitions? Are they having difficulties um, with going on the bus to get to school? Where are, we, where are we seeing these areas of need, these areas of concerns, and how can we help out with them? And by incorporating these daily schedules where they, where they need to be, we can really set up our students for success to be independent in these transitions, which is our end goal for all of our students is to have independence. So we don't want them to need us to help them get on the bus, to help them transition, depending on grade level, if they're middle school or high school, you know, transition from class to class. We want them to be able to do this on their own. So by being able to incorporate these daily schedules that are appropriate for each one, of course, our younger ones starting off with like object and picture schedules, moving on up to our upper grades where we have like checklists and different kinds of more appropriate schedules for them to follow. We want them to be able to do these on their own. Um, um, and again, a lot of people get really concerned when we say schedules, they're like, oh, you know, we really want them to be independent. And that's what a lot of people don't really understand is these daily schedules help them with that independence. And an example I give to a lot of people is 
I live and die by my calendar and that's my schedule. (laughs) If I don't have my calendar on me, I don't know what's happening for the day. And same goes with our students. They need to have some kind of daily schedule to help them independently get through their day. And it will vary student by student, need by need, of course, depending on their age. Um, But it's super important to really talk about what's gonna be the appropriate type of schedule to have in place and when and where it's gonna be needed. Is it gonna be needed? at home? Is it going to be needed in general education? Will it be needed in the special education classroom? Will it be needed in all of these areas to show success for our students? So those are conversations you're going to want to have with your families and teams to see what's going to be best appropriate to meet this consideration. That's great. And I'm glad that you, I mean, you've kind of said it a number of ways, and I really appreciate it, that one size does not fit all. Exactly. Again, you have to have that assessment data, you have to know your students well, and you have to get input from families in order to know what's going to work to help the student be independent, which is, of course, always the goal of of a schedule. So, uh, yeah, that was that is uh, really an important one. Um, I know consideration three sometimes leads to a little bit of confusion. Uh, Consideration three is in-home and community-based training. So how do you, um, if you could define for us, you know, sort of what that's talking about, and then again, also as you talk about it in the IEP. Okay, so for um, in-home and community-based training for consideration three, realistically in my eyes, the way I kind of explain this one is, how can the student adjust to like new environments and new settings um, when we're looking at our students, especially our older students who are going to be getting to that age of majority and they're going to be getting out of their IEPs and going into the communities and looking at those community settings, the DVRs that are going to be coming in. How are we going to start involving these community resources um, early into their IEP so that they're familiar with this transition phase and and how they're going to adapt to the community is is kind of how we see this consideration going on um, here. Who are we contacting? Who are our base contacts for these so that the families can start building those relationships before they head out into the community so that we can start bringing them in early so that families are really comfortable with the next step. It's, It's a huge area of trust, especially when you have a student Um, with any disability, when you're leaving a group of people that you've trusted with your child for such a long time, and you're taking that next step, whether it be from preschool to, to kindergarten, from middle school, you know, up to middle school, high school, and then out into the big world of the community, being able to establish these relationships and get these things set for them early on. So the families kind of have that built up trust with everybody before they kind of let their, let their child out into the big world. And it really is so important to think about those things earlier on. And I just uh, was noticing in the um, uh, thing from the PED manual, it does have uh, links, uh, interagency linkages and transition services as part of the things that need to be uh, talked about at the IEP meeting in regards to this consideration. Yes. And just making sure, of course, again, like we talked with any consideration, talking to your families, what do they envision for their students, talking to the student themselves, if you're able to, what do you want to do? What, what, kind of th- what kind of services, what kind of things can we get set up for you as we start getting ready to, to, to transition you into a new environment? Because that's going to have a lot to do with what specific services that you're looking for as well. And of course, you've mentioned a number of times, and I don't think it can be said too often, is what we're after is independence. Yes. And that's going to look different for every student. Yes. 
Um, consideration four, and I know this one is near and dear to your heart, is uh, positive behavior support strategies. And uh, so I, I think, you know, we get confused a little bit, uh, at least in my experience, teachers sometimes get confused in thinking that we're talking just about those students who might have a functional behavior assessment and a behavior intervention plan. But these positive behavior support strategies are uh, to address every student in the school and how do you talk about that then in regards to your students with autism? Great. So for this one, I really like to look at it, as you had mentioned before, as in teaching you skills, um, really setting up our students for success. And that's kind of how I look at the whole considerations when I talk to, to teachers as well Is this is really a just a plan for success. Yes, they are guidelines, but by making sure that we look at each of these considerations, we're really setting our kids up for success. So making sure that we're talking to our students, talking to our families, again, and looking at data to see where our kids are really going to need the support the most, making sure that we have routines set for our students, that we're offering breaks. Um, and one big thing that I, I do talk to a lot of teachers about is always making sure in the area of positive behavior reinforcement uh, support strategies, making sure that we tell our students the behaviors that we expect them to see. Um, a lot of the times we hear, don't do this, don't do that. And okay, well, what do I do? You know, we really need to look at how we rephrase the way that we're speaking to our students and talk to them about the things that we expect them to see find them doing good things, let them know what they're doing well, and really find ways to work those into our IEP so that we can set them up for success. And again, with, like we said, that independence coming through and having that reinforcement um, component built into the IEP as well. What types of reinforcement are we using? When will it be used? Who's gonna be using it? Who's gonna be teaching it to the staff and the family? Because we want that to be consistent across all boards with reinforcement as well. Right. And I, I know, again, I, I know this is important and I know you know it's important because I've been in your classroom uh, to actually help teachers um, help their students to practice some yes. of the things. Uh, so, you know, in terms of school-wide rules or, you know, the way you walk to the cafeteria or whatever to have opportunities to practice that. And of course, our students are going to need uh, some more practice and possibly some additional um, uh, prompts to be able to do that. But it is so important to remember as you said, to tell them what they can do, not what they can't do, and then to help them uh, really practice and, as you said, be reinforced for those positive behaviors. And I'm glad you brought up the modeling again, too. A lot of the things that we use in our classroom, we, of course, break things down into many schedules so that we could have it visually for our students. And one of the huge things that our students really enjoyed the last couple of years I was there was the video modeling. They really loved the video modeling. So anytime we, and I think the biggest one that was super helpful for us was actually picture day. Um, you don't realize how much picture day will actually interrupt your schedule for the day. It's really, it's a really hard day. And so we were very fortunate enough to have um, picture day go on a couple days at our school. And so I kind of went up to the guy at the camera and explained our situation and said, Hey, you know what? picture day is coming. I really need to just, can I just practice and, you know, can my EA record me so we can get the steps and get this done. And it, it was really helpful because I was actually able to use that video modeling for a couple of years. And I really saw a difference because I could play it a week or two weeks before picture day and tell the kids, okay, you know, here's our icon for picture day, picture day is coming. It was on our schedule. And 
I played that video over and over for them. And it was so great to see them because we practiced going into the where pictures were being taken. They had watched the video. They had their mini schedule. And gosh darn, those kids went up and did it. <laughs> wow, that's a great was, that's a great example of using evidence-based strategies. And of course, the the 11 considerations are all about. Uh, what is evidence-based, what are good evidence-based strategies for kids with ASD. And that is just a beautiful example of that so that they, to be able to watch, and it's always motivating for kids to be able to watch while they're teachers or themselves or other kids. That's a, that's a wonderful example. And I think just like a, a big key component, especially to using these behavior, uh, positive behavior supports is really talking to your team. Um, as a teacher, my EAs and I, I, I always felt that we had a very strong team and a very strong connection. And we would sit down, um, you know, we ate lunch together, we'd sit down after the kids left and we'd, we'd eat together and, and we would have a daily, a daily staff meeting and we'd say, you know what, what went really well today, what didn't go well today and how are we going to fix that? And those are kind of topics that we had where we talked about, oh, you know what, picture day was not good today. How are we going to fix that? And we would write those notes down. And those are things that we would do, like eye modeling videos for and kind of look at other areas where some of our kids were struggling a bit and how we were going to fix those and talk about different strategies. So really making sure that you sit and talk with your team about these things is super important. And it was super beneficial for me in my classroom as well. And that's such an important reminder to make sure that we include everyone, uh, families and uh, school staff, people that are working with kids. And, you know, I, I know that you've had some similar experiences as well, where, you know, even um, perhaps the, uh, the custodian or some of the personnel in the lunchroom uh, can be really helpful for our yes. students and can help remind them of uh, how to, how to uh, go about things in a positive and an independent way. Yes, and I will say that was one thing I was very grateful for at, at the school that I worked at. Um, our staff was very welcoming of anything that we asked them to do. If we were working on greetings, if we were working on anything, I could just send an email to the teachers and they knew what we were doing and our kids could practice any skill we needed in the halls with the kids or teachers. So I was very appreciative of the staff that we had there that was willing to jump in and help us out whenever we needed it. Well, and that's really another thing, and we'll get to staff training in a little in a, a little bit. But uh, thinking about staff training, not only the staff that's working directly with with uh, the students with autism, but also the rest of the school staff, because you know you and I know that you know some well-meaning teacher who sees a kid crying in the hall is just going to try to help them, you know, be happier and figure out where they go. When all along it may have been part of a plan. To to, you know, kind of let that student pull themselves together and then come back independently. So uh, staff training about that and really incorporating, you know, your school staff, uh, no matter um, who they are, is a really good consideration. Mm -hmm. um, consideration number five is futures planning. And it made, uh, it, it makes a point of saying beginning at any age. And of course, I, you know, this is something, one of my many uh, things that are near and dear to my heart is that uh, thinking about uh, that the transition to adulthood begins with that, you know, three-year-old in your classroom. Um, so would you talk a little bit about what we're talking about in terms of future planning and uh, how you go about that with an IEP, um, you know, at any level? I mean, I know most of your experience is elementary, but uh, thinking about how you go about that at the other levels as well. Sure. So for future planning, we're really looking at like living skills to be fully functional individuals out in our community. 
Um, and again, starting this again at three years old, a lot of the times on IEPs, um, we'll see the NA portion kind of marked on this. And, you know, this is something we, we really tell teachers, it, it's okay to, to start planning. Now there are three, we ask typically developing three-year-olds, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they want to be, you know, a firefighter. They want to be, you know, some of them want to be unicorns and that's okay. We can mark that down. <laughs> they want to be a unicorn. Mm -hmm. um, and you can ask families to what, what, what do you see your child being, especially, you know, if we have some students who are nonverbal coming into our school system at first, families know their interests, they know what they're good at doing. So they might have an idea saying, you know what, they really like to kind of experiment in the kitchen. Maybe I could, you know, they could be a chef one day. And those are great aspirations for them to put down. And it's really nice because you can see that develop as they get older. So starting at that base level when they're in pre-K and then watching it as it grows up, did those change? Did they stay the same? What, you know, and based off those skills, those are great ways to get your reinforcement set up for yourself in your classroom. Um, knowing kind of what they're interested in and what they're, what they're willing to work for are really beneficial as well. So making sure that you're talking to your students, if they're able to speak to you and let them know what their interests are, um, especially going into like middle and high school, asking the caregivers as well, what do you hope for your child? What do you see for your child in their future? is super beneficial as well. Once they get into the middle school and high school, once we have these questions answered, this really gives you an idea of what community resources you're going to need to start looking for for these students. What kind of resources do you need to start linking to them so that we can make this available for them so they can get some experience in this before they get out into the world so they can determine is cooking something I really want to do or do I have a passion for music now so really getting these ideas um, and talk talk to the parents talk to families caregivers talk to your team to see what additional resources are going to be available for them so that they have these experiences and so that they can do this when they get out into the community well, that's, those are great examples. And um, I, I it is amused at you mentioning, you know, some kids want to be a unicorn because, you know, even unicorns have to use the potty independently. Exactly. So it's, it's a great way to, it's a great place to start. Um, and, and I did notice as, as uh, we were talking, uh, there is just on this one, it's, uh, it says in order to address this consideration, it's helpful to ask the following question. Does the student need assistance with resources to transition to post-secondary environments? So that that's, you know, our ordinarily what we think of in terms of transition and or daily living skills within the community. And certainly those daily living skills within the community are those uh, skills that we start out on just as soon as we possibly can. Yeah. So just always kind of having that question in your head, what's happening after high school in this child's life? And that will kind of help guide you through this, through this consideration. Right. And I always remind uh, both families and teachers, you know, the things that I reminded myself of as a parent uh, that, you know, these years, it seems like, you know, 12 years is a really long time, but it's not at all or 12 or 15 years even is not a long time at all. So we have to really make sure we make the most of those years while we have them. Yes. Um, consideration six is parent and family training and support. Um, so how do you uh, use that one and um, how do you help families and parents get the training and support that they need? So for this one, in terms of parent and family support, uh, we always want to make sure that our, our families have access to community resources. We have a variety of them here in town. We want to make sure that they're linked up to these resources so they have these trainings available to them in their home to help students, such as like with ABA services that can go into the home and help. 
Um, we also do provide support. We do have several, uh, we used to do lunch bunch groups here in Las Cruces where families could meet together. Um, uh, daycare was provided for some of the families who do, did need some help for their, for their younger children, where the families could kind of get together and discuss issues and talk about things like, you know, what doctors are you going to? I need an audiologist. I need, I need to get blood drawn. You know, these, these things that we don't normally think about that our, our families really struggle with. Um, now, since of course we can't be getting together anymore, we do have two online face group, Facebook groups that do help our families. Uh, we do link all of our trainings for community virtual trainings on these face group uh, face groups for our families, so they have access to them. We post additional resources that families need. Families can still post questions on here that myself and a couple of other people in the district are um, adminning over, so that we can get them linked to the correct resources that they need. Um, trying to think of any, uh, we also do have an autism uh, lending uh, library in our district as well, where we're able to uh, provide families um, and caregivers with uh, printed visual schedules that they may need. We will print them, we laminate them and Velcro them and get them ready for them to use in the home. Uh, we can provide training for them on how to use those at home. And also if their ABA therapists at home are there, they can also model that training for them at home since they are the ones that are able to go in now due to COVID. Um, is how we are providing some of our supports. The Autism Library also provides books and pamphlets and videos of different resources that families may request that they can check out for free. And they're able to check out about up to five materials that they need. And then they just return those when they're done. And then they can uh, request some additional materials to take home, especially over the summer, since some of the kids may not be in um, extended school year. And some of the families may need additional materials to help rotate to keep interest um, going at home is, is a great resource that we can provide for them as well. Uh, those are really great points, and uh, it's just so cool that Las Cruces has uh, those kinds of, of resources, and I know uh, in large part due to your efforts and those of some of your colleagues. Um, and it really, I, I appreciate the way that you talked about um, making referrals uh, for this consideration for family training and support. I think sometimes uh, we get confused thinking that, you know, it's talking about teachers going into the home and providing, you know, the training themselves. And, you know, it's not to say that that, that may not happen on certain occasions, but really it's referring uh, families to the help that they need if it can't be provided within the, um, within the school. Yes, that's, that's, that's true. And I want to say this, this consideration has probably kind of been like a big red flag for me now, especially that we're in the COVID situation that we're in. We've been doing a lot of our learning virtually. And so this has really made myself and our team aware of how important caregiver training really is because we're really counting on our caregivers to do what we do in the classroom. <laughs> and so a big component, especially that we've been hitting hard now is really training the caregiver via Zoom as their student is sitting next, as their child is sitting next to them and really walking them through the steps of everything that we're discussing today on how to teach their child to do specific things, especially with new skills and how to maintain these skills. So this has been one that the situation that we're in now has really like widened our eyes on really the importance of teaching your caregiver. Absolutely. And, and I, I'm glad that you made that point about, you know, the online training and the things that we're trying to do, which, which we could not do without that family support. And so helping them uh, know how to help us is really an important thing. Yes.
Consideration seven is staff to student ratio. So again, I think this one sometimes uh, needs a little extra explanation uh, because it's often used uh, to think about the, the kids that maybe need one-to-one assistance at all times. And um, you know, we think about that in different ways and, and need to help families understand that that may not always be the best way for their student to get what they need. So how do you talk about the staff to student ratio? So when we're talking to teachers about the staff to student ratio, we're really telling telling them, I really want you to look at your student state and see where it is that they're really needing additional help during that day. Are they needing additional help when it may come to a transition? Are they needing additional help if they have a medical need and need to get to the nurse? Things like that and seeing where we're going to need to really look at looking at the ratio from the staff to the student to keep safety in mind for the student at all times. So are they going to need additional help if there's a fire drill, if there's an evacuation? Things like that is what we're really looking at because you need to have that smaller setting due to like a tip of behavior that may be occurring during that particular time in the day. So really having the staff look at any kind of data that they may have for any any portion of the student day and figuring out where is that area of need gonna be and how can staff be there to support that area to make it more successful so that we can lead towards independence so that they don't need us anymore. We really wanna work on fading ourselves out during those times. So uh, would you agree that it's really more about looking at the um, specific times and activities where that student may need a little more, um, a little closer support versus, you know, someone there all the time to provide? Exactly. We really don't want to have the student get accustomed to having somebody there all day, every day. That's not independence. That's not what our goal is for our students. So really stepping in in areas where you know your student needs a little bit more assistance. And then once you see them starting to be more independent, then fading that adult back and pulling back so that the student can really grow in that area. And then that's when you say, okay, I no longer need this adult. Where else can this adult be needed? Because we've done our job and this this student is successful in this area. We have done our job with him and it's time to use that adult either with another student or maybe in another classroom who may be needing some assistance as well. That's such a good feeling to be able to kind of work yourself out of a, a little piece of a job anyway. Yes, I used to tell we um, back in the day, here we go, when we were like in normal classrooms, right? And I used to send uh, my students into Head Start to get some general education time. We started going in just for a few minutes, bumping in. You know, we started small. We're going to go in, do hello song, and then we're going to leave. And we're going to come back in and do hello and calendar. Then we're going to leave. And we ended up actually staying through centers. And, you know, I told my assistants, you only go in, only bump yourself in if you need to, like only intervene if you need to. And I remember one of my assistants came back one day and she's like, that was the longest hour of my life. She's like, I was so bored in that class because I just sat there and I was like, then we did our job. I was like, then that's amazing because he doesn't need you anymore. (laughs) I was like, congratulations. Feel good about that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a, that's a really great story. I love it. Um, so consideration eight uh, is communication interventions. And I know uh, you, you've spent lots of time with us and other people and are so great at communication interventions, but uh, tell us how you talk about this particular um, uh, 
um, consideration. Okay, so for this consideration, I really feel it's super important to have your speech language pathologist involved because this is their area of expertise. Um, you know, I, I tell them I, I'm not a speech language pathologist, I try my best but always making sure that you're involving your family and your SLP in this conversation, trying to see what kind of assistive technology you might need. Um, is the assistive technology going to help with any behaviors that you might be having? Is it going to really make, will it increase any behaviors we're having? We really need to look at that and take some data on those types of things. And again, it, what type of assistive technology are we using? Are we using AAC devices? Are we using an iPad? Are we using pictures? Have we even used pictures yet? Can they discriminate between the pictures? So really asking a lot of these questions when you're really looking at what kind of communication devices that you may be using, asking parents what's, what, what they might have used or tried at home uh, that may have worked for them and what didn't work for them and why. Is the why because they weren't properly trained in it? Do we need training in these types of interventions that we're going to be using? And if we are doing training, who's going to train? Will it be the teacher? Will it be your community support? And, you know, is it going to be your ABA therapist at home? Will it be the speech therapist? There's a lot of like varying questions that go along with this uh, consideration that need to be addressed when you're discussing these things with your team. Absolutely. And communication is just such a broad area. And I'm so glad that you uh, brought up the importance of making sure that you are involving uh, a speech language pathologist, um, uh, uh, applied behavior analyst, if you have that uh, person available to you, because uh, that really is areas that they, they focus on. And we really need their help to, to understand how best to do that. Consideration number nine is social skills, also a hugely broad area. Uh, but if you could tell us how you address that area. Yes. And this is another area that I always like to bring in an additional person from your team, which is your social worker. <laughs> this is their area of expertise here as well. So looking at social skills, observation is going to be huge here for your data collection. So really watching your students, getting to know your students and their interests when they're young, wanting to know what they're willing to work for, what they're going to do, because you really start really young with those skills and getting to work on those back and forth reciprocal communication skills. But then if you look at the older kids, um, really asking those students, how's it going at school for you? Having those conversations, how are your friends? What do you like to do with your friends? Having, you know, making sure do, are they saying they have friends? Do they feel like they have friends? Do we need to work on making friendships? Those types of skills that can really come up through conversations with your students. And then also asking the families, like, how's it going at home? How are they at home with the neighbors? How are they, you know, because those are skills that your in-home services can help you with as well. But you really want them to really make those connections, especially with individuals in their neighborhood, because these are people that they go to school with from kindergarten all the way through high school and graduate with. So you really want them to form those connections because those are the people that you see day in, day out. You see them on the bus, you see them on the playground, you see them at McDonald's, and you want them to be able to build those friendships and be able to help support them to build those friendships so that they can see them out in the community and have conversations and, and do things that friends do with their friends. So glad that you mentioned uh, all sort of the nitty gritty things in terms of uh, social skills. Our last uh, considerations, 10 and 11, are put together. And they are a professional educator or staff support, 
and teaching strategies based on peer reviewed and or research-based practices. And you have already mentioned so many of those strategies, uh, but just talk to us a little bit more about this uh, professional educator staff support and teaching strategies based on peer-reviewed or research-based practices. Okay, and so for this consideration here, this is kind of where I come along with my new position on a lot of the IEPs, is that they're gonna have some kind of connection with somebody who can help them with resources that the staff is gonna need. Do they need training in picture communication exchange? Do they need training in pivotal response? You know, what, what strategies did we determine that this individual student is going to need and what training do we need to make it successful for them? We really want to make sure that anything that we're using is up-to-date, consistent information across all settings so that the training that the staff is getting, we want to know that the family is getting this training. We want to know that in some instances that siblings are getting this training because they're going to be a part of everyday interactions with our students as well. So making sure that our EAs are trained in what we're doing, because as a teacher, you want to make sure that you can feel confident leaving your classroom for an IEP or even a sick day and know that things are going to get run, that data is going to get taken, that um, uh, discrete trials are going to get done. Things are going to be the way things are going to get done the way they would if you were there. And that's kind of what you how you want your classroom running. So making sure that we document a plan and that we say, you know, um, if we don't if we don't have this training, we're going to say this is the training we're going to get. And this is kind of when it this is when it's going to get done, um, making sure that you describe in detail what trainings that you need that need to be done for that specific student so that we can set them up for success. Making sure that everybody's on board for the training and that everybody understands the training as well. Always making sure that you check back for understanding like we do with our students. We need to check back for understanding with our staff and families to make sure that these strategies are being implemented appropriately. That's, that's great. Thank you so much. And, and uh, kind of thinking about communication and social skills, which are so important for kids with ASD. Uh, that may include, you know, as you mentioned, the speech language pathologist, it may uh, include the social worker, people who, while it is their job, um, may not have familiarity, particularly with students with autism that have some very um, important uh, core deficits that, that need to be addressed in very specific ways. And they really need and always want that, that training. Um, so I think that pretty much completes our discussion of the 11 considerations. Is there anything that's just that you're really thinking about that needs to be mentioned that hasn't been mentioned yet, Loretta? I would just like to say one thing. I, I, I do have a brother with disabilities. And so I've, I've had IEPs around my life for as long as I can remember. You know, he, he's 38 years old now. So he's, he's out in the community now. But I remember when I became a special education teacher and one thing that my mom said that really stuck to me and even sticks to me as we go through these considerations, whenever you're thinking about asking questions to a parent in the IEP, always make them aware of what questions, if you can send the questions home early, send the questions home early. So they have time to think about it. That's one thing my mom said to me that really stuck in my head was, she always felt put on the spot when the teacher would ask her a question and she's sitting there in front of all these professionals and her mind would just go blank. And she would just tell me, if I only had these questions early, I would have time to think about it in a room at home where I'm comfortable and I could write everything down that my kid can do. And that's just been one thing that has stuck with me. So even any questions that we usually tend to ask, especially pertaining to the 11 considerations, I would always email the parent or write on a piece of paper and send it home and say, hey, we're going to ask these at the IEP. Sit down with your family and think about the things that 
that make your student that make your child shine let us know about him give this is his story tell me his story and really giving the family time to do that um i think was a was just very beneficial and i told my mom I'm going to do that for every kid, mom, because I know that's something she really struggled with at every IEP. And that's something that I did with all of my families. And there was quite a few times that I've, I've got the thank you saying, I don't know if I could have answered those questions in the meeting. So thank you for sending that home. And that's just been something that I wanted, I, I did, and I wanted to share because we really don't think about how much we do put parents on the spot, especially in an IEP meeting where it's a team of professionals and, you know, they, they, they may feel a little put off at sometimes, and we want them to know that their input and what they have to say is just as important as anybody else has to say. Well, I'm so glad that you made that point because we talk about, um, you know, kind of person-centered planning, and we talk about strength-based planning, and you can't do that unless you really, um, you know, help the families communicate with you uh, where the what things are important to them and the things that they know about their child that you know the school is not going to know or at least not going to find out until May. Exactly. Uh, if, if they don't know it from the parents. So I'm so glad that you made that point. Thank you, Thank Loretta, you. for talking with us about the 11 considerations. I just, I want to hop in my car and run right down to Las Cruces now and visit your classrooms again. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that's not going to happen for a while. So We, we can do something virtually. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for talking with us today about the 11 considerations. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.